when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners, too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Daniel Dines, the founder and CEO of UiPath, one of the biggest automation companies around. But not the automation you might think. UiPath sells software automation, or what consultants call robotic process automation, so uh, they can sound fancy and charge higher fees. I mean, let's be honest. Robotic process automation, or RPA, is actually very simple to understand. Let's say you have something in your business that relies on older software to do some repetitive task, like entering billing information or moving data from one system to another. Now, the intuitive way that most of us would think about making all that more efficient would be to upgrade or replace that old software to something with more capabilities. But as we've hopefully all learned by now, new software often causes more problems than it solves. There are compatibility issues, stability issues, and the general chaos of rolling it out and making sure it all works. UiPath and other RPA companies have a different approach. You just hire another computer to use that software for you. Seriously, UiPath uses computer vision to literally look at what's on the screen and then uses a virtual mouse and keyboard to click around and do things in apps like Excel and Salesforce. The automations can be mundane, like generating lists of people to contact from public records, or intensely complicated. UiPath can actually monitor how different software is used throughout a company and then suggest automations to save time. Huge companies like Uber and Facebook, Spotify, Google, they all use UiPath. This obviously leads to important questions. What about all the people whose job it was to use that software before? If a whole company is automated like this, how will any innovation happen at all? And how does a company like UiPath defend itself against big competitors like Microsoft and others who see how big the market to automate their software is and will obviously want a piece of that action? I had talked a lot about the social consequences of automation with New York Times reporter Kevin Roos last year after he just published a book on automation in the workforce. But I was really excited to talk to Daniel about it directly and hear his perspective on competition in particular, because UiPath has had a pretty up and down year. The company went public almost exactly one year ago in one of the biggest software IPOs ever. Since then, the stock has taken a nosedive. It IPO'd at $74.84 a share, 
but at the time I'm recording this, it's just $16.34. Obviously, the market as a whole is falling, and tech in particular is having a tough time, but I wanted to ask Daniel how UiPath was built for this moment, how mainstream he thinks automation can be, and how he's thinking about those competitors like Microsoft and Salesforce. Of course, we also talked about social impact. What can automation do and not do? If the robots are coming, or if they're already here, what might be the consequences for workers across industries? How is UiPath guarding against some of those consequences? Daniel has some pretty interesting responses to those questions. He thinks giving boring work to robots instead of people makes the people much happier and might even keep them from looking for new work in this time of the Great Resignation. He told me the story of a company that was seeing upwards of 40% attrition that eventually deployed UiPath to give people a lighter workload. The idea was to make the job more attractive and keep them from quitting. We often worry about automation taking jobs away, but it was interesting to hear Daniel talk about how automation might help companies retain their employees. Last note, Daniel is Romanian, and he started UiPath in Romania. So we talked about the war in Ukraine, how it's destabilizing that part of the world, and the effect it's having on his company and the tech ecosystem at large. It was a really good and useful reminder that the real world is still very important even on a show that's about tech and business. This is a great one, so let's dive right into it. Daniel Dines, founder and CEO of UiPath. Here we go. Daniel Dines, you're the founder and CEO of UiPath. Welcome to Decoder. Thank you so much for having me, Nilay. I have been excited to talk to you for a long time. I think, as you know, robotic process automation is one of my favorite subjects, and you're the guy to talk about it with. There is a lot to talk about. It's actually almost exactly the one-year anniversary of UiPath going public last April. It was one of the biggest U.S. software IPOs in history, $1.3 billion. I want to talk to you about what that was like and what this last year has been like. I do generally want to talk about software automation, it has a potential to reshape how everyone works, which is, I think, important to dig into. And I want to talk about where UiPath as a company goes from here as the market reacts to automation existing, right? I, I think one of the big challenges for UiPath and for everyone else is, well, robots are going to become a class of users right alongside people. So I want to dig into that. I think that's a big idea. But let's start at the beginning. What is UiPath and how did you end up starting it? We are an enterprise software company that specializes in enterprise automation using a very different flavor to automating business processes compared to any other technologies. We simply emulate human users. It's more like the self-driving car version of the automation. And that has the tremendous advantage that it reuses the existing workflows, operations that are proven in enterprise, and we just code them into a software workflow. So it speeds up considerably the process. It's more cost-effective than any other type of automation. And it proves that it's the only technology that can scale for the long tail of manual processes. I just want to unpack what it means to emulate a human user. I feel like in the world of enterprise software, there is a tendency, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the world of enterprise software, there is a tendency to dress up simple ideas into language for CIOs and finance people and whoever. When you mean emulate human users, 
You mean your software uses a mouse and keyboard to use other people's software? Yeah, that's very well said. <laughs> okay, I just want to be clear. Like, you have a virtual, you have a robot that moves a mouse around a screen and clicks on things in Microsoft Word or whatever. Yeah, but it's not a physical robot. And we okay. don't use the physical mouse and the physical keyboard. We use an emulation of mouse and keyboard, and we emulate you know, them on yeah. the computer. It's virtual because you can move the mouse cursor on the screen without moving physically the mouse. This is just, you know, technology that any computer provides. So we are within the computer, but we are seeing the screen and we are operating like a human user. So again, just to make this as dumb as possible and as accessible as possible to as many people, you have an application that emulates a mouse and a keyboard and a display and it can see whatever application is on a screen, whether it's Salesforce or Microsoft Word or Adobe Photoshop, and then you write automations there to operate that software. Yeah. Look, if you want to send an email to someone, you will yeah. open your email client, you go new email, type the title, you know, subject to whom, and then you type what you want to say and you press the button. We can code this workflow in our software and you can literally see on the screen you know how the email client opens and you know all these actions are replicated and the mail is sent yeah so this is just a very simple idea that has obviously now this is a huge company it has enormous implications for how all this works but i just wanted i wanted to start with this is actually a pretty simple easy to understand idea for how you might automate software. How did you come up with it? What was the genesis of this idea? How did you end up starting this company? The idea, it's kind of old, but it has not been used to automate business processes. This idea comes more from the world of testing. Like as a software engineer, you have to test your applications. And then many people use this technique, which is called, you know, regression testing to to simply you know, emulate a user doing this. So that, that's kind of where the idea came from. But I really didn't understand how big the market is. Because, you know, to my naive, na I was naive. And I was thinking in all big enterprises, all these manual processes don't exist. They already been automated by various <laughs> other technologies. So we thought this is a... This is a small use case, more in kind of IT automation, ITSM type of use cases initially. So we, in order to unlock this idea of emulating people, we built also a low-code, no-code uh, environment because this is also key to, to what we are doing. So we have reduced the technical skills required to build end-to-end process automation to people that have some kind of knowledge about programming. We don't require experts in programming. So paired with uh, this approach, we've seen our first uh, big usage in the BPO industry, business process outsourcing. Because they were like 2014, 15, when we saw first time this market, they were under a big pressure to continuously deliver year over year more benefits to their clients. 
So they squeezed everything they could do from the process optimization using techniques like Lean, Six Sigma, or similar. But they were back then at the verge when automation was the only way to get more, to, to reduce the cost of their offering. So they started to use this type of technology. And very soon, their clients got the win. Oh, this is something very interesting <laughs> that can give us back the leverage, you know, in the relationship with the outsourcer. And then it, uh, when people realized what a huge return on investment it generates. And by our knowledge, this is the highest return on investment technology that exists there. We currently are seeing people that invest 200K and they generate 5 million in return. We have companies that generate 10 million and in and uh, that invest 10 million and they generate in the at the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars in return on investment. Let me ask you about that real quick. That specific return on investment I've always wanted to dive into. A business process outsourcer, a BPO, as you're saying, that's your external accounting firm or your tax provider, some back office function that you need to do to run a business but that isn't your business, right? It's whoever it is on, on, the, on the outside who's just running your accounting or your billing or your invoicing or something. You sell to them because they need to lower their costs and provide more services. And the easiest way for them to cut costs is to get rid of a warehouse full of accountants. And if you automate some of that work, they might be able to get rid of those some people and increase their margins and lower their costs. Then you're saying this work comes into a company because they see it happening. And they can generate, you know, we said a $500,000 investment for millions of dollars in return. Are they generating more revenue or are they cutting costs to generate that return? I think it's both. Okay. And let me explain how, how we actually, what's the journey in an enterprise? Because that, that, that will, uh, you know, make you realize how the entire, you know, the, the flywheel of automation works. Mm -hmm. We land usually in a department like finance, most of the cases, but there are others like HR or, you know, procurement. So we land into a department and we uh, help them build, let's say, a center of excellence. And they have a certain number of KPIs about their automation program and how do they measure the results. The most important one for us is the number of manual hours that we return to the business. And we need to have someone like uh, a controller or the CFO, someone in that suite that signs for these KPIs. And they are strictly measured. So once the program is putting into place and the business, this you know unit returns the manual hours, it's very usual that the controller will go back to them and say, I want to invest more in this. This is a technology that generates so much for me. So how the cost is reduced? You can deploy, you know, people from this low level tasks to higher tasks so they can produce more and they can actually increase your revenue in the, mm -hmm. in the company. A simpler way, we talk to one of our big telco customer has a negative NPS for instance. They so all do. If we Every telco customer has a negative and, and net promoter <laughs> score. Yeah. That's yeah. how much people talk about how much they like your company, right? And if we help in their contact centers, if we help, you know, their agents to engage more the customer and their NPS growth, 
it's actually a good way to increase the revenue for okay. providing better services. So it's both. I just I want to come back to the, the very simple idea of what the core of the product is to telco customer service reps do a better job with customers. This is sort of implies that if you're a telco customer service rep, you're using some piece of software every day that keeps you from interacting with customers, right? And it's maybe the phone company's internal customer management software is bad or hard to use or slow. Anybody who's called a phone company customer service agent has experienced their frustration with their own software, I'm sure. So this implies this piece of software that someone has to use inside the company. Is part of your pitch, instead of fixing that software, just hire us to have our robots use the software for you, and then your people will have more free time? Well, it's not instead. Okay. It's in parallel. What's the alternative to... I would say fixing the software is the alternative. Yeah, but I'm not saying fixing the... I, I'm saying why you are not going to do it in parallel. So that, okay. that's, that's very interesting. So they, I had exactly the same discussion with a very big bank in UK. They said, I am going to change all my legacy software in contact center <laughs> and I will standardize <laughs> on Salesforce, for instance, service cloud and CRM and everything. But how long does it take this project? I have asked it. Maybe three years in total. And can you replace it in one single step? It's impossible. Because it's not only two systems there, it's maybe 20 systems the agent has to go. And all of them have to be integrated, replaced. So if we start with placing our automation layer on the top of the old system, we make the job of agent simpler. First of all, because the agent will interact only with our software. And we abstract away the underlying systems. And then the IT can go and replace those systems at their pace with better testing, with better results than just doing it in one step. And he agreed with me. And it was the CIO of a big bank there. And this is what they put in place. And we eventually, all the software will continue to be replaced by new software. This is how you know the industry works. But I want to point to you, and I think this is important. Our customers are not only mature, very mature businesses that's been through mainframe era. We have a lot of new breed of software companies as our customers that are only cloud-based. I can give you Snowflake, CrowdStrike, Uber, Spotify, Facebook, Google are our customers. And they don't have legacy software. But you know why? Because this approach of emulating people is the only one that works at scale. So mm -hmm. this is why they are using us. Yeah. I just wanted to kind of really understand I agree with you. I don't think large-scale enterprise software transitions are easy for anyone. But I, I do think one of the interesting components of this is a recognition that people have to use software, and that software might actually be the bottleneck, even though the software is kind of the job. right? So if my job is to use Excel all day long, a recognition that Excel is the bottleneck is kind of a mind-expanding idea compared to any of the other bottlenecks you might think of in a job, which is like, I'm waiting for someone, or the order hasn't come in, to say, actually, the bottleneck in your job is, your job is repetitive use of software, and the software gets in your way. I, I don't think many people consider it that way. 
in a way, software is a tool, Nilay. It can be a better tool. It can be a shitty tool. But eventually, and if you look at uh, kind of the best crafted software, let's say, you know, ERP systems has been here for 30 years, and they had a lot of uh, pre-coded processes. They come with the way, this is how you should run your business. They cannot include all the interactions between different external systems. There will be never one single piece of software that does everything for an enterprise. You will need, at the minimum, you will have something like email, something like spreadsheets, APIs. You live in an ecosystem. Nobody can put all the optimizations in one single instance. And companies like SAP are pure examples. You cannot really do fully automated enterprise on their instance. And people even are reluctant to code into their ERP systems. It's dangerous to get there and every single change every day to a process for, I don't know, compliance reasons, you record something into the core system. People don't do this. This is why always there is another layer on the top where it sits this more of the automation layer. This is how we call it. It's much easier, it's cheaper, it's less disruptive to the business to put your automations, your operations on this layer rather than into the core systems. Yeah. What do you think the limits of automation are right now? I think the limits are, uh, if we speak of technology, itself is more on uh, around maybe natural language processing because it's if the if the process is not standardized enough and they use a lot of uh, natural language to deal with it of course it's more difficult to automate the end-to-end everything that is repetitive in nature at this point even if you require like intelligence in the process, like reading documents, like reading reading invoices, we are not stupid to use fixed coordinates on doing with this. We are really working like a human user. You can do. The moment you need to get to kind of higher cognitive tasks, that's the limit. And actually what's embedded in our software is the concept that we call humans in the loop. So you can, in, in a big process that involves, you know, multiple users, maybe hundreds of tasks, we, we basically organize like a ping pong with humans, you know, for the task that a robot cannot do. You send an email, text, asking something in the contact center, right? We cannot understand maybe the intent or everything. Then we will send, we, we are the receivers of the requests. We parse the request as much as we can do. If we understand completely those requests, we go and automate them. If we don't understand them, we will create a test for a human user. What does the request say? And they will just give us in a more structured format. And then that request is passed back to the robots and so on. This is how it goes. So therefore, we remove the mundane tasks from people's you know, daily work. So they will deal mostly with the exceptions. And so that makes the job much more enjoyable and the output of the people working in operations, you know, higher. One thing I'm really curious about is who uses software. 
software products are made for their users, right? The product managers of any software product thinks about who's using this software, and then they kind of write features for that person, or they write user stories about that person. Have you seen any software adapt itself to UiPath now that a core user base is robots? Because that seems like the the craziest feedback loop of all time. I'm not sure I get it. You you mean that users will be ad- adapted to how the robots operate? Right. So if you're the product manager of Neelai's enterprise software, and you know about 50% of the users of the software are UiPath robots, I better optimize the software so they're, they can use it more easily. Have you seen that feedback loop? Well, not really so far. But I've seen uh, our clients putting more pressure on their vendors and being more predictive with the changes to the user interface that might break the robots. It's something that I, it's interesting. I had the discussion actually with a guy from Microsoft that worked in their uh, more of interface group once. And they are also anticipating you know, a world where if enough pressure will come from software robots using the user interface, they will just have to treat the user interface almost like an API. We cannot just break the existing things because right now people are much more freely changing user interface, sometimes stupidly, because I still, you know, we were talking about (laughs) the Mac before. I still, I cannot use this private versus uh, I don't understand what what was in their (laughs) mind when they changed the interface. But anyway, maybe the user interface will become more like a contract, like API is supposed to be. Yeah, or you'll have two user interface modes, right? You'll have the robot mode and you'll have the human mode and you change the human. Possible, yeah. There's just a world of software design here that I don't think has yet responded to the rise of automation. And it's coming and I'm, I'm just dying to see what that looks like because it seems... It seems very unlike anything that's come before. Yeah, that's a great point, Eli. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about the origins of UiPath. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. 
HIMSS is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash decoder. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back with Daniel Dines. Let's talk about EUI path itself now. This is always what I think of as like the decoder questions. How many employees does UI Path have? It's uh, almost 5,000 people. And that's all around the world, right? Yeah, we are very much distributed around the world. In fact, we've been, as a business model, we've been one of the very few companies that I know that have started uh, their expansion globally from day one. We started in, uh, in Europe, in a small country in the European Union, in Romania. But when we got product market fit, we expanded simultaneously US, Asia, even Japan. Japan was the fastest revenue growing for us for the initial years. That's a really interesting growth story, right? To expand globally right away that obviously implies lots and lots of things. How did you structure the company to do that? Well, around that, I would say I didn't structure the company. <laughs> In the beginning, I think the key was to offer people, you know, a lot of freedom to do what they want. I was working very closely with uh, people in uh, in sales. And one uh, one day, one of our sales leader came to me saying, oh, there is an event organized by PwC in Japan. I would rather go there. Maybe it's a good market for us. I said, why not? Just go to Japan. <laughs> and then it proved that it was an awesome market for us and they were prone to automation. So it was not really, we have a big strategy. It was more test, go, use your best judgment, and then spread. I am saying our strategy was more like, uh, you know, the Genghis Khan and the golden uh, <laughs> court. It's like go faster than your competition in the most richest places. But you need to find where those are and then just go and occupy and uh, then move on. This is what we did in the early years and it was very successful. So now you're a public company, you have 5,000 employees. How is UiPath structured now? Well, many people <laughs> in the first years would say that we are becoming corporation, we are more bureaucratic, and we hired a lot of uh, more senior people from the external world. I am trying to keep a balance in this company and being a disciplined company that, you know, generates predictable results quarter over quarter and keeping the soul of an explorer, people that have this freedom to try things, to break things, to go and find new opportunities. To me, one of my mantra that I'm trying to instill in this company is always challenge 
your boss. And I even say something, we have a no boss culture in the company. And the more senior people are always turn uh, a bit aback. <laughs> what do you mean by this? But it's very empowering to think I don't have a boss. I have a partner. I have a guy that is, I need to be capable of speaking very freely with them. To me, it's one of the most important thing for me that I'm trying to achieve here. Well, this leads right into what I think of as the classic decoder question then. How do you make decisions? I listen a lot. You know, maybe in this interview, I, 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 I felt that I talked a lot, but that's not my style. <laughs> I kind of uh, listen a lot to people. I'm trying to learn more. So obviously, I have no idea how to run a big company at this stage. I've never been in a similar situation. So trying a lot to listen, trying to build a very close-knit executive team that rely, you know, one on each other. We, we do a lot of decisions together. So my kind of uh, way of making decision is do them very fast if they can be reversed. And because it's always a cost of decision, do them very slow if they are irreversible. One of the interesting story about building the framework of this company was about the culture of the company. So, and we were like, you know, a bunch of kids like 10 years ago that we were thinking about what's the culture of the company, how to define it. And we came with uh, lots of words like, uh, I don't know, we are open, we are transparent and so on. But that ends up in diluting the culture. And uh, I had this epiphany one day and I said to myself, we need to define the culture by one single word. Let's start there. And then going back to our roots, I found that uh, humility is the word that should define our culture. And it's not in the sense of being submissive, obviously, but in the sense of humility, in the sense of capability to listen and change your mind, change your ideas. I really, I don't like people that believe, you know, I'm a big guy, I know what I'm doing, I got it. So this is not our style. Our style is listen, change your mind. If you don't prove that you are capable of changing your mind, this is not the company for you. So let me just add those two things together because at some point you're the CEO and you have to make some decisions. And the people who work for you, even though they're not the bosses, sometimes you just want your boss to make a decision. How does that play out in practice for you? It's You've listened a lot. You want to be slow on irreversible decisions. You want to have some humility that you don't know everything. At the end of the day, though, right, you have to decide, okay, now's the time to go public. How do you make decisions like that? Or how do you empower people underneath you to make those decisions and tell people what to do? If I'm thinking about the decision of going public, that was a decision that I made the moment when I took external funding into the company. So it's been uh, more than uh, five years. So our first uh, round of investment was in uh, July 2000. 15. So that was the moment, and you and everyone should subscribe to this idea. The moment you take external funding, you basically you, you decide it over an exit that is IPO or you know some kind of MA there. Why now? Why in 2021? 
it's more of the right question for me. And uh, look, we've been through an accelerated maturing phase in 2019 and 2020, and the market was just ripe for an IPO. It was the best IPO market almost ever, I think. And we know that the window for an IPO opens and closes. And uh, we were ready from the you know, internal systems, from the kind of predictability of our revenue. We had you know, more than 3,000 employees at the time when we IPO'd, maybe almost 4,000. We wanted to give them a way to cash out you know, after all the years they put in. So it was a kind of a right moment. It was a bit of a no-brainer for us at that moment. Now, if I'm going back in time and I'm looking at what happened in the market and, you know, how the public, public markets are a brutal stage. <laughs> Look, Nila, I think it's very simple to explain why. As much as we say to us and to all of our employees, Yes, we are here for the long term, the stock price doesn't matter. The fact that every day you see a movement in the stock price, it affects because it tied many people are leveraged on UiPath from you know from the people that I work with. So it has a direct impact to them. In a private company, maybe they raised money in August last year, high valuations. Right now, they are not forced to adjust their internal valuations. Even when they hire people, they can say, this is my valuation, this is what, but it's not real money in a sense, mm -hmm. you know? So they are less affected by these movements of the stock. And also think about in our discussions with investors, it's a different level of, you know, having private investors and having public investors. And in a way, we've been forced to mature in a condensed amount of time. I felt that makes us a bit more competitive and more resilient. So it has benefits, but it's not easy. This is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's been almost exactly a year. It was, we're talking April 20th. You went public on April 21st last year. What's the biggest lesson you've learned in that year of being a public company CEO for the first time? The biggest lesson for me was uh, never lose the grip on the company. As I think kind of all of us, and starting with me, after a very successful IPO, stock price, pricing going to the ceiling, and uh, I think we felt a bit too relaxed, you know, honestly. And maybe a bit we were drunken with our own <laughs> success. So it was not, we, we didn't make big mistakes, but I felt that, you know, we kind of, we, we started to drink our uh, own Kool-Aid. And um, I think we could have done better, honestly. We are working in an amazing market. And this market is in its early innings. So we could have captured more of this market in my opinion, if we were still, you know, executing laser focused there. So I think, and this lesson probably you can see across many recent IPOs. Let's talk about that market, actually. I think that's a really interesting thing to focus on. You have a product, people like it, you're selling to a lot of big companies. 
UiPath has a kind of ferocious product development cycle. The other side of that is sales, right? If you want, you can grow your market by just selling the product you got to many, many more people who might not know about automation or your existing customers who are using it a little bit and you can apply it to more places or you could develop new products to attack new segments of the automation market. What's the split there for you? How do you think about, we got to make new products for new kinds of customers or new uses, or we need to invest in sales and get new customers or sell more to our existing customers? Well, I think the only way is to do both and simultaneously. So when we started the market, when we've seen the big market expansion, which started seven years ago, we had two big competitors. One of them was the most advanced at that time in terms of the overall technology, I, I would say. But uh, they stopped investing in technology. They invested more into go-to-market, but it was, it was still early in the market. So they got, uh, you know, a very early IPO, but on the more of, uh, you know, penny markets than on, you know, on the big market that happened in UK. And they completely, I think, stopped the innovation in the company. <laughs> so if you look at their product seven years ago, and now it's, you can see big differences. We invested hugely initially into product development because we had a brilliance. This part of uh, what we call computer vision. You look at the screen and you understand what's on the screen, which one is the button, what are the radio buttons, selections, everything. We understand very well. That was our secret power. So we are much better than everyone else on the planet. And starting from this brilliant thing that we had and we developed over time, we invested hugely in building around all the white spaces around the product. So from being the number three in the market in 2015 and a distant number three, just by 2018, we got into a number one in the market. And since then, the lead is increasing. So after we got product market fit for us, which was a truly product market fit was beginning of 2017, when we had, you know, kind of overarching product capable of, you know, automating end-to-end. Then we started to invest massively into the go-to-market, and then it continued. So I think kind of this is the right. Go go to product market fit. Don't invest faster than this because you will be bored. And you are not capable of hiring the best salespeople out there. The moment you get product market fit, it's kind of a self-fulfillment prophecy. You know, the product sells yourself People, you know, salespeople smell it, they get, <laughs> they get it, and you get better and better people that makes bigger and bigger deals. It's amazing how the best salespeople always gravitate toward the product that sells itself. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> there's something there. I don't know that there's a there's probably another hour of decoder just on that idea. Uh, I'm curious about challenges, right? You do have some competitors, they're in different stages. Many years ago, I was with Microsoft and I saw Satya Nadella and he had just discovered robotic process automation and he was glowing about it. He was telling a room full of reporters and analysts that robotic process automation was a a big new market for Microsoft. Your software, obviously, I think one of the key pieces of software that UiPath automates is Microsoft Office, specifically Excel. How do you see that relationship with a company like Microsoft or Salesforce, right? You're using computer vision 
you don't necessarily need permission from them, right? Your software can see their user interface, can move the mouse, can click the buttons. You can do that in a repetitive way. Do you need to work with them? Do you work with them? How does that work? Yeah, we have a good relationship with Microsoft. I used to work for Microsoft, you know, five years before starting this company. I even met Satya, and he's, he's really an uh, outstanding person. And we, we gave him a demo of, of our product. <laughs> in, uh, but to, to us, Microsoft getting into RPA created more awareness. It was a good thing, in a way. And uh, right now, I think it's also clear to the markets where Microsoft plays in relation to the RPA. They have this tool called Power Automate, and they also acquired kind of a small company out of uh, Greece to do this computer vision part. Because Power Automate is more API-based, and they needed some kind of computer vision part, and they combine it. But what they can do is more like personal productivity. It's, this is where Microsoft is best. So they can do with their approach to RPA really light use cases, simple use cases, and particularly those where people, subject matter experts can do it themselves. This is where Microsoft plays. Now, going into enterprise automation, when you have to take an entire process like uh, procure to pay, order to cash, this is not something where we are seeing them. And when we, we were seeing them, we always win in the market, on the enterprise automation market. In the same time, our cloud software is based on Azure. We have a very good relationship with uh, the Azure side uh, of Microsoft. So it's a more of a competition between uh, us and Microsoft. One of the issues with being in competition that's a great word. One of the issues with being in coopetition uh, with the big players, especially Microsoft and enterprise, is that, I don't know, you're Slack. And one day Microsoft is going to say, well, now Teams is free. And they're going to crush you out of the market until you have to sell yourself to Salesforce. Is that a thing they can do with Power Automate? They can, they can just bundle it into their product or they can go to their consulting firm partners. I know that UiPath sells a lot through the big consulting firms. Can Microsoft go to their consulting partners and say, look, we're going to start bundling these capabilities into everyone's office suites. You can build your business with a tool that your customers already have. Is that a worry you have in that competition? They did it already for two years now. They even put it a free version in Windows. So they deliver a free version with the Windows. We are not seeing... Uh, again, competitive pressures on uh, what we are doing best. It's, you know, medium to complex processes really getting the return on investment done. And this is particularly why this is a very different proposition than Slack. In the case of Slack, a good enough product that you can deploy across, you know, everybody in the enterprise is not going to make a huge difference into any return on investment. Slack is not a return on investment game. It's, it's a different type of game. We are more like a tool that customers are buying. I'm using this crude metaphor even with my salespeople. Guys, if you order food, 
right? And they would give you, you know, very nice steak. Are you going to use the forks, the plastic forks that they are sending with, you know, with the food? <laughs> or you get a really nice... <laughs> you get my point. I do. I'd never heard anyone describe Microsoft Power Automate as plastic forks before, but or Slack as a plastic knife before, but I, I appreciate metaphor. Do you think the Salesforces and the Microsofts or the SAPs of the world, is there any technical reason that could prevent UiPath from operating? Is there any, I mean, outside of the business reasons that they might wish to do that or might not wish to do that, being able to operate the computer through computer vision and, you know, KVM or operating the mouse and keyboard, that doesn't seem like they can stop you. But do you, is there any risk that they might find a way to do it? Well, I've seen attempts for people to from trying to stop customers using this approach to, you know, charging higher licenses if you do this. So I've seen all of this. But in the end, they have to do what's in the interest of the customers. For instance, we are pretty big in healthcare. And, uh, you know, there are a few... ERP systems there, and they are particularly not pleased with the way that we read their screens. But when you have big customers like Cleveland Clinic and Mayo Clinic, and they say, this is how we are doing, what can you say? Because in the end, we are not competing. And this is the situation with SAP as well, and with Salesforce. With In the end, there is as much you can do within your system, but you have to recognize that there are very few companies that will base all their operations on one system. And the moment you get out of one system, you need a more of an independent player to that is capable of operating equally well all the systems. And uh, I want to also make sure that uh, you understand we have started from the UI piece, from the user interface piece, using mouse and keyboard. But we have an equally well API approach. To us, right now, today, it's about combining and do you know what's easiest and what's more reliable in, uh, from, from these both worlds. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll ask you this broad question. I would say the history of depending on other people's APIs to build your business outside of the operating system context is not like a history full of happy companies that thrive, right? Like you want to build on the Facebook API, your business is going to go away. You want to build on the Twitter API, your business is already gone. You want to build on Microsoft's API, they might be able to take that away from you, right? So it's, it's to me, just from the outset, the reason I've been asking about computer vision is because that's the thing they can't take away from you. It seems like a more reliable place to live than we trust this API access will persist or be dependable or not subject to business pressures that actually turn it into leverage over us. Yeah, that's this is a point that I never reflected on, really. That's actually true. They cannot take this away because they have to make the software usable to human users. They need to have a human-readable interface. And the moment you know how to operate this human-readable interface, you have absolute freedom. To us, what was the key? It was not necessarily that people are afraid of using APIs. I'm not going to this uh, route. But I'm saying it's 
easier to build on the to build automation on the top of human interfaces rather than APIs. APIs don't match in a one-to-one what you see on, on the screen. So to do an operation like creating a new opportunities, to understand the corresponding API, it's kind of complex business. To understand the human interface, you know, all of us can do, and just emulating how I can do it is much easier, require a lot less knowledge. We are way more cost effective in implementing automation at scales because one, we reuse the workflow. With API, most of the time you have to change a bit your existing operations. And every change requires intensive testing, re-education of the people, getting more project managers that understand. When I take the existing operation and replicate it one-to-one in software, I can use the same people, less volume of work. So it's the only way you can get to the long tail of manual processes. This is where nobody can actually compete with us. Because take Microsoft. If you have a thousand processes, you take Microsoft, they can maybe automate 10%, 100%. But I can show instantly that the return on investment using us for a thousand processes, it's much higher than, you know, just going for a hundred processes. And even for that a hundred processes, if my tool, it's a better, it's a sharper tool, and I cut way more slices of bread than the plastic, you know, knife. <laughs> Wait, even, even if they pay you to do this, it's still not <laughs> worth it. I'm just excited to, to see the note that goes out inside these companies saying our pro- people think our product is a plastic knife. Just on the computer vision piece, obviously you have to see the company's data, their applications, to operate it in that way. What are the privacy implications of that? Are you storing that data? You've got to ingest it, right? Some, your robots, whether they're running locally or they're in the cloud, have to see the screen. How do you, how do you maintain the privacy of your customers and their data while you're doing all this work? We praise ourselves for our flexibility of deployments. So we can deploy our software completely as hosted on cloud, completely on premises of our customers or even in a hybrid way where the robots work on the customer data center, but our orchestration piece is in uh, our cloud. And so if it's on-prem, obviously there is no privacy implications. If it's on cloud, we have built a world-class cloud uh, offering. It's one of the reasons why we establish a presence in uh, Bellevue, Washington, was to have access to, you know, the best cloud engineers out there. We have all the certifications required in the cloud. And also we are in the progress of getting, of being FedRAMP certified, which is a very difficult type of certification to acquire for a cloud company. So we have the security on par in our cloud with the best uh, cloud companies out there. We've got to take one more quick break, but we'll be right back. Support for Decoder comes from Shopify. Some people might say cat memes built the internet, but it's e-commerce that keeps the lights on. If you've dreamt of building a business, Shopify can be a great place to start. 
Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. It doesn't matter if you're a well-established global brand or selling handcrafted goods out of your home workshop. Shopify has the tools to help you go further. Like their AI-powered tool Shopify Magic or their built-in marketing tools that can help you create, execute, and analyze campaigns. You can sell wherever, too, online or with their in-person point-of-sale system. Millions of entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries rely on Shopify for their e-commerce needs because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash decoder, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash decoder now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash decoder. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back with Daniel Dines. I wanted to zoom out and ask about the rapid growth at UiPath and in the whole automation industry. How will Daniel work to keep that from going wrong? Let me ask you about just automation generally now. One of the kind of classic tech stories is that companies find product market fit, they grow really fast, they become really big, and they never took a beat to figure out what are the negative repercussions of what we're doing, right? And there's like, how many TV shows are out right now about this? There's We Crash and Super Pumped and all that, right? You can see it. Here, automation has this huge potential to impact how everyone works, right? If you have a job right now and you're listening to this, and your job is just kind of like using Excel in the same way every day, there's a real chance your boss is thinking about UiPath and maybe getting rid of your job. How do you think about those negative downstream effects of automation, and how do you think about that creating opportunities for people as opposed to just the robots are coming? I think the best way to answer this is to look at the realities that are today in the labor market in the U.S. We're assisting to one of the highest ratio of uh, number of jobs being published and number of hires ever. So the pressure on the on the labor market is as high as possible. I would rather say that automation is one of the very few ways to release a bit of pressure on the market right now. Because I've seen cases uh, with, uh, you know, one of our customer, a mid-tier investment uh, bank company, told me that they had 40% attrition in uh, one year. 40%, 4-0. This is a bit unheard of. And they are even thinking of bringing automation as a perk for their employees, educating them, giving them a robot to help them in their daily job as a perk, just to help retaining talent and attracting new talent. It's a secular shift where the new people that are coming into the market 
they are not gonna do the same type of kind of repetitive, sometimes boring jobs that maybe other generations have done. This is one of the reasons of this big, uh, great resignation that uh, we are seeing today. So I really see only positives by uh, bringing automation into a company. I was listening to one of your earlier interviews. You said the pandemic was kind of net neutral to UiPath. No loss, no growth. Yeah, That's really surprising to me, right? One of the big work from home insights, I think a lot of people just intuitively got the second they started working from home every day is, oh, my job is just using this laptop. And going to an office to use this laptop is stupid. I can just use this laptop anywhere. And my job is just using the software. And you would think that that insight combined with a great ex- resignation would lead many companies to say, all right, we're just going to automate a bunch of this laptop use. <laughs> like we don't, this is ridiculous. Our employees don't even like doing this work. And we have all this office space and they're just coming into the office to use these laptops. Like, what are we doing? Why do you think there was, it was net neutral as opposed to what I would have guessed would be growth just because everyone kind of realized like, oh, my job is just going to an office to use software. First of all, you know, it's been industries that, you know, put a big pause on their operations, like uh, travel industry, for sure, in the beginning of COVID. And while we've seen an uptick in demand in uh, other industries like healthcare and uh, public sector, we've been quite involved into helping our uh, hospitals and healthcare insurance companies and uh, and uh, local governments in the US to send uh, you know the claim benefits it's been a lot of work on that time but it was compensated by a big reduce in uh, retail in uh, and travel so this is one dimension of thinking of you know our revenue getting in uh, during the COVID time. Second dimension is if you look at the ratio of uh, expansion in existing customers versus net new logos. So our expansion increased in existing customers, but we've seen pressure on net new logos. And this is particularly why, because companies were faced uh, in COVID with more pressure on facilitating remote work. So that was their top of the mind, that survival. Automation is not a quick fix. It's not a a fix that you can do in a week. For instance, if you need today a thousand jobs, data entry jobs, low level data entry jobs, it's gonna take maybe an year to bring automation and fix, I don't know, 70% of the problem that you want to fix using uh, using people today. So it's a, it's a longer journey. This is why it was net neutral. And the best proof for us is that in 2020, end of 2020, our revenue, we hit our internal targets that we, uh, we set to ourselves before COVID. But believe me, in the beginning, it's, we've been through a big scare. Because we thought we are going to hit half of this target. It would have been a, a disaster for us. I swore to myself that I would ask this question of every enterprise software CEO that ever came on the show. Do you use your own product? I was the product manager. I'm still, <laughs> I'm still, so I, I work as a CEO, but I also work as a product manager. I have 
many features in the product that I am supervising myself directly. So, of course, I'm using it. I'm a software engineer, Nilay. So, <laughs> used to write C code. Yeah, I just, every time I file my expense reports, I think I'm going to ask that guy if he uses his own <laughs> software. So I've swore that I would ask every enterprise software CEO if they use their own yeah. tools. You've got kind of, you know, this huge market ahead of you. You've got all this change in the labor market. You're mentioning that a younger generation of workers might not want to do repetitive tasks. You're really global. That's a lot of opportunity. I, I would be remiss, though, if I didn't ask this question. You are from Romania. The company was founded in Romania. Your last earnings call uh, about a month ago, you mentioned that the war in Ukraine is affecting the European market, and that's something you have to to deal with. I feel like your perspective on the war in Ukraine and that market is is unique here. How is that affecting your company? And we saw, you know, there were great Ukrainian startups. There are great startups all through that region. What do you think the impacts of this war will be on that market and on that growth? And then in particular, on all the people there who were building things? Starting with us, it's kind of a mathematical impact for us mostly because we have to write off our business in Russia. And we have invested quite a bit, you know, in the region before this. And it was one of the highest growing region, growing more than 100% year over year was Russia for us. Was that an easy decision or a hard decision for you? Well, I think it's relatively easy. We still have our team there, the Russians team, and they're good people, you know, but it's a very complicated situation going on there. But anyway, regardless, we had to write off the Russia business and then uh, the work created, you know, a lot of uh, FX pressure on our business because being global helps a lot in good times. When in times like this of war, when dollar is like a safe currency, the exchange rate doesn't work in our favor. And if you look at euro to dollar, it's you know, one of the lowest points in their history. Same with Japanese yen. And we have a significant material business in Japan. It's more than uh, most of the software companies. So it's been an impact that's been to our business. And also this time, the uncertainties in the markets, like about raising interest rates uh, and, you know, maybe economy will go into slow down or even uh, it's going to be a recession, make some of the big deals that we are working on more uh, fluid in terms of timing, in terms of size of the deal. Still, it's a soft impact. It's not a big impact. We are not losing deals. We are just uh, seeing maybe some... Uh, you know, different parameters for a deal. So instead of a customer like signing up for a three years deal, maybe they will do just one year deal, you know, to give you an example of how we are seeing us being affected. For the entire region, we have a big base in uh, Romania. It's a big development base and uh, back office operations. And I can tell you that there is a kind of palpable feeling of insecurity, despite the fact that Romania is a member of uh, NATO. So 
attacking Romania would be like, uh, you know, starting the Third World War for sure. This insecurity, it's, um, and of course it affects your productivity, it affects your mental being. I haven't seen people that left the country, left Romania, not Ukraine, to just <laughs> because of, uh, you know, being afraid of in case of a war, you know, countries will be closed and martial law will be declared and all these sorts of I know it's it's a very small scale but that's the feeling and it's it seems that we are right now assisting to a very long war so the situation there it's gonna be prolonged for uh, many months I guess yeah I thought it was important to ask you because you do have that perspective there we are out of time this is how I end every interview softball question What's what's next for UiPath? What should people be looking for? We are in the early innings of this great opportunity. To us, it's continue to invest and innovate into product. We are making our product more and more, more similar to how human mind operates. One of our major initiatives is called semantic automation that brings more knowledge into our robots. In the same time, we always were bringing talent into the company. We are investing in go-to-market. We are investing in customer success to support our customers. We'll just continue on this both fronts. All right, Daniel, thanks for being on Decoder. Thank you so much. It was really great. Thank you. Thank you again to Daniel Dines for taking the time to chat today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like Decoder, hit us with that five-star review. And I hope you noticed, if you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.